Peter Williams from One O'Clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio. And a very good afternoon and welcome. This is the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on RCR. It is a Friday afternoon. It is the 8th of September. And it is a day when I am very much reminded that I am now of the older generation. That's because the youngest of my three children turns 40 today. You know, when he was born in 1983, I never thought about where I would be on this day, nor where he would be either. As it turns out, we are both in the same country. Actually, we're in the same island, although he's in a big city and I'm in the country. He's done well for himself. He has two university degrees, more than his old man. He has a house, a job, not much of a mortgage, and he's got two children. But best of all, We are still friends, and you can't really hope for more than that, can you? It's on days like this that you look back and think, yes, it was a great idea to have three kids by the time I was 30. I just wish that more couples could do that today. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Its political quotes comes from the great American writer and satirist Henry Louis Mencken. H.L. Mencken was an astute observer of politics and of life in the United States during his working life from the early 20th century until his death in 1956. This is what he once said, quote, The whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed by menacing it with an endless series of hobgoblins most of them imaginary, unquote. You would think he was writing about the New Zealand Labour Party of 2023. For some reason, despite them being well behind National in the polls with an election barely five weeks away, the party has had an outbreak of H.L. Mencken's imaginary hobgoblins. I mean, why else would some of their cabinet ministers, MPs and staffers just start making stuff up? when they know it can't possibly be correct. They're saying in writing more fiction than Lee Child. Willie Jackson started it with his claim that National were going to do away with the minimum wage. And even worse, tried to say it was true because National were going to cut it, which is also wrong. The guy is a clown. He is rapidly turning into the best asset the centre-right has. Then Andrew Little, the immigration minister, said in a Facebook post that National would sack all the teachers and flog off all the schools. I mean, really? Mind you, with the quality of some of the teachers and some of the schools and the results they're producing, uh, the idea actually has a bit of merit. The Northcote MP Shannon Helbert has claimed that National will reduce sick leave from 10 days to 5. Again, wrong and never in National Party policy. Duncan Webb, the Christchurch MP, has said in his latest newsletter that National will abolish Matariki. Where the heck did he get that idea? Then the most absurd claim of all, saying that National will abolish free public transport for disabled New Zealanders when no such policy actually exists now. I mean, that's not a bad effort from Labour. Five incorrect claims in four days. Five imaginary hobgoblins. You know, in one respect, H.L. Mencken is correct. The entire New Zealand populace should be alarmed by Labour's sheer incompetence and ill-discipline. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio slash members and join now.
There is something very sinister going on at the Ministry for the Environment. Quite possibly with encouragement from Minister David Parker's office, the Ministry has tried to get organisations like Federated Farmers and other NGOs, non-governmental organisations, to take part in planning, resource management and freshwater management processes in the weeks before the election. This would mean the NGOs would have to use the recently passed Three Waters and Resource Management legislation before the election and therefore make that legislation difficult to repeal after the election, as National and ACT have promised to do. But here is the rub. If Federated Farmers and presumably other NGOs like Fish and Game and the Environmental Defence Society and possibly Greenpeace were to start a resource management process under the new legislation, the Ministry, the Ministry for the Environment, would pay them $600,000. Can you believe that? Only five weeks before an election, which the government has every chance of losing, a government ministry is offering what is in essence a bribe to start a process which would invoke the new legislation. Federated Farmers submitted strongly against the Resource Management Act replacement, this Natural and Built Environments Act. In fact, they were the first group in front of the select committee, told them the bill was not fit for purpose and should be thrown out. The government used its majority to nevertheless uh, nevertheless, rather, push through a massive piece of legislation, which is five years in the making, but which is so complicated, even the Chief Justice warned the select committee about its convolutions and that it introduced concepts which could take years to properly define through lengthy court cases. But the very stubborn David Parker pushed on determinedly, and the Natural and Built Environments Act, all 1,300 pages of it, received royal assent on August the 23rd. Now, Federated Farmers don't know what the other NGOs are doing about the offer they would have received, but the feds were unequivocal. They told the ministry they did not think it was appropriate for the taxpayer to be funding a Federated Farmers process only weeks before an election. The feds told the ministry they didn't want the $600,000 and that they would go public about the offer. So they have. It is absolutely despicable and irresponsible behaviour from a government ministry at any time. To do it at this stage of the election cycle, frankly, just beggars belief. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. When you go to fill up your car with petrol or diesel, you would never in a million years expect that the service station or fuel stop would be owned by the government. Fuel supplies for vehicles in this country have never been owned by the government. So why then is the National Party, the supposed champion of private enterprise, promising to build a network of electric car charging stations across the country? It is not the government's place to own such a business. That they have committed more than a quarter of a billion dollars to such a project is quite staggering. For a start, is there enough electricity being generated in the country to supply such a network? Christopher Luxon says he wants 10,000 charges installed in the next seven years. 
He quotes Britain as having one charger for every 20 electric vehicles. New Zealand's ratio is currently 1 to 95, so of course we need more EV charging stations. But why does the government have to build and own them? Well, presumably the government will own them. They're not going to construct them and install them, are they? And then sell them to private enterprise? Who would know? Surely the best idea in these straightened economic times when the government already has way too much debt is to make the consenting and building of such facilities very straightforward and then to encourage either the power companies or the fuel companies to invest in what many claim is the future of vehicular travel. What any government needs to do is find out what it can do to make the installation of EV charging a far more straightforward process if the demand for EV charging stations is there and if the process to allow them to be built is straightforward, then surely the market will take care of their construction. At no stage in the history of motoring in this country has vehicle fuel supply ever been owned by or installed by the government. So why should it start now? RCR is on a mission to revive Honest Media, and now you too can be an integral part of it by joining the RCR Foundation Members Club. Receive exclusive benefits only available to club members, including your own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions, along with our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, that's delivered to your email box every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members to see how you can join the mission that's making a difference. Making a difference. Well, the polls are coming thick and fast at the moment. Two out already this week. The latest Taxpayers Union Curia poll is due today as well. They tell a similar story. National and ACT together are the strongest bloc. Some of the polling suggests they will need New Zealand first to help them form a government. Others say they'll be able to do it by themselves. The New Zealand first scenario is by far the most intriguing of the election campaign. The Taxpayers' Union poll has Winston Peters' party not making it back to Parliament, but he's so close and is well over the line in other surveys out this week that I reckon he will be over 5% comfortably on the 14th of October. My pick is that on the night, the national number will be 37. For ACT, 12, and New Zealand First between 5 and 6. But that means when the votes for the parties who don't make the threshold are counted and then discarded, National and Acts combined 49% will get them a majority of the seats in the House and they won't need New Zealand First, which will make for an interesting conundrum. Will New Zealand First sit on the crossbenches and be neither government nor opposition? Or will Chris Luxon invite them into the tent for a bit of insurance? The weirdest part of the polling out this week is the number for ACT. It ranges from 18 in Monday's Roy Morgan poll to just 10 in the Talbot Mills poll. Somebody is very wrong. I'd be prepared to say their real number is about halfway, maybe a little bit less than halfway between those two numbers, somewhere in the 12 to 14% range. What I do know, though, is that farmers are absolutely fed up to the hilt with the current government. I've heard that Federated Farmers did a poll among their members, but haven't as yet released their numbers because they were so low for the Labour Party, the Feds can't quite believe if it's true or not. 
A thousand Federated Farmers members were surveyed. The number supporting Labor was eight. That's right. If Federated Farmers released their poll, the Labor Party would poll 0.8%. Frankly, not even 1%, 0.8. Frankly, after what the man that some people call Davos Damien O'Connor as the Minister for Primary Industries has done to farming through regulations and environmental plans, it's surprising that even eight cockies are still prepared to give Labour a vote. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. The Media Insider column on the New Zealand Herald website each week is a column, funnily enough, about the media. I think it's way too long, and even as someone who has worked in the media for half a century, I find a great deal of it rather yawn-inducing and requiring the fast scroll. It's written by Shane Curry, who for a long time was the editor at The Herald, so he knows all about the internal machinations of the place and of the company that owns the New Zealand Herald. Today he's written about the front page advertisement placed by the Council of Trade Unions earlier in the week, which was an ad attacking the National Party leader, Christopher Luxon. Now let me say at the outset, the concept of an entire front page of a newspaper being an advertisement is a major turnoff. Harvey Norman have been running those front page wraparound ads for years on papers up and down the country. They annoy the hell out of me and they've hardened my determination never to buy anything from Harvey Norman ever again. I'm old enough to remember when newspaper front pages were all classified advertising, but that was in the late 1950s and early 1960s. Then the owners of the newspapers saw the light and actually put news on the front page and newspapers enjoyed their golden age. The internet, of course, has killed all that, and the golden days will never return. But the Harvey Norman wraparounds are, for me as a reader, hastening their demise. But once you've done it, you've got to allow anyone who wants to advertise there to do so as long as it is clearly marked as an advertisement. Now, the Luxon Attack ad did have the word advertisement across the top, so in that respect, it did advise readers. But the ad was cleverly designed in bold font and with few words so that from a distance, you would think it was news, or rather, the newspaper's political stance. Frankly, I think it backfired because so many people thought it was playing the man far too much rather than the ball, as in policy. Previously, third-party attack ads, like those run by the Taxpayers' Union, attack policy and the politician behind the policy rather than the politician himself. Personal attack ads not backed up by policy are a pretty dirty and, in my mind, ineffective tactic. The preferred Prime Minister polls increasingly show the ads do not work and did not work. But anyway, back to the Media Insider column. Shane Curry reports that NZME, the owner of the Herald, told him, quote, that all advertising decisions are made from a commercial perspective and stand very separately from editorial, unquote, which I would challenge most vociferously. Case in point, 
both Family First and the group Stand Up For Women, SUFW, have wanted to run advertising in the New Zealand Herald and in other papers too, of course, which would contribute to the debate on transgender issues. The Herald, in the days when Curry was the editor, would not run the SUFW ad, uh, for which the copy was, quote, woman, adult, human, female, unquote. Stand Up For Women maintain it was Curry himself who stopped the advertisement running. If newspapers are in such a parlous financial state, I find it curious to say the least that they will not accept good money from some activist groups like Family First and Stand Up For Women, but they will take it from the Council of Trade Unions. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Christopher Luxon was in Queenstown yesterday and made a few announcements about tourism, as you would expect him to. I suppose he has to fly the flag down this way, although you actually wonder why he makes more than a cursory effort because his electorate candidates in this part of the world, Joseph Mooney and Miles Anderson, will both hose in and the combined national and ACT vote in central Otago will be very strong as well. Maybe he just likes visiting the area and looking at the scenery. But what got me was a very snarky line in the New Zealand Herald uh, reporting about the trip, about housing in Queenstown. Yes, Queenstown and Wanaka, the Queenstown Lakes District Council area, is desperately short of worker accommodation. It has been for years, and shock horror, some people have to travel from Cromwell to go to work each day, and it takes them 30 minutes to get there. Actually, it will probably take them a bit longer, but a half-hour commute is not uncommon in various places around the country, so why should it be in the Queenstown and Central Lakes area? What annoyed me, though, was this comment about the number of empty houses in Queenstown. I quote, Data from the 2018 census shows roughly 5,000 empty homes in the district, a shockingly high 27% of the housing stock, unquote. Now, why is this number shockingly high? Has the Herald's Derek Chen got something against people who have done well enough in life to own a second house and who want it available for use when they have a holiday in Queenstown or Wanaka? Why is this a shockingly high figure? This is a country where people are free to work hard and accumulate assets. Many thousands of people have bought second properties in the Queenstown Lakes District Council area. But believe me, they pay for the privilege. Land prices are crazily high, building costs the same, and the rates on a $2 million house, which is not much above the average price for the district, the rates on $2 million will be around $150 a week. If you're paying that sort of money just to hold the property and can afford to, Why should you be obliged to rent it out to help solve the accommodation shortage? People have choices here. The government and the council do too, of course, and could go a long way towards easing this accommodation crisis by making it much easier for hostel or apartment-type rental accommodation for workers to be built. But they continually make it difficult. Hence, not much is available. But for a newspaper reporter on a whistle-stop visit to say that 27% of houses in Queenstown being empty is a shockingly high rate is out of touch with reality. It's also out of touch with the right of New Zealanders 
to do what the hell they want to do with their assets. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Well, it is a Friday before the Saturday. The afternoon before the morning. The nervous time before the big game. Yes, we are less than 15 hours from the start of the 2023 Rugby World Cup and the continuation of what has become the most storied and most famous rivalry in the 36-year history of the Rugby World Cup. New Zealand versus France. Ah, it makes the juices flow with memories of the epic contests of yore. I was lucky enough to be at Eden Park for the two occasions New Zealand beat France in the Rugby World Cup final, 1987 and 2011. I was also there at Twickenham in 1999 when the All Blacks blew a half-time lead and collapsed in the second half of the semi-final in what was quite possibly the best game of rugby I've ever seen. But we lost, so we don't think of the match like that. Then there was 2007 and the quarter-final at Cardiff. I watched it on a Sunday morning at Waihi Beach, of all places, and then went for a walk in the sunshine on the beach afterwards, just to get over it and forget about it. There were hundreds of others doing the same thing. Nobody talked. Nobody looked at each other. We all walked with our heads down. It was surreal. Tomorrow morning, the contest resumes. This time, though, it's quite different. It's not a knockout game. No matter who wins or loses... Both teams are likely to progress to the quarterfinals and maybe further. This first game may actually turn out to be the last game, the third Rugby World Cup final between New Zealand and France, but that's all six weeks away. Tomorrow, I have to say, I'm not overly confident of a New Zealand win. After what happened to that match against South Africa two weeks ago and with a few injuries in the mix... I fear the All Blacks might get second again. If that is the case, let's just say they will be better for the experience. And we can always look forward with optimism to the Warriors match tomorrow night. Oh, yes, that's right. They're not expected to win either. So let's not go into this weekend of sporting activity with super high expectations. Then if the All Blacks and or the Warriors win, we will be... Pleasantly surprised. If they lose, remember, both teams will get at least one more chance. This has been the Peter Williams Afternoon Show. Thank you for your company this Friday. Have a great weekend. I look forward to talking with you again on Monday. You've been listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Remember, you can catch Pete's full show combining smooth sounds and candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis and the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on our live broadcasts, 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays. Right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio members and join now.